0: Today, Today, I consider consider myself myself the luckiest luckiest man man
1: on the face of face of the earth. Welcome back to the Luckiest Man Podcast. I'm Tony Kaminsky. I got my friend Brian Rezepa here and today we're going to talk about the year 1905. As always if you enjoy the podcast give us a five-star rating on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at luckiestmanpod. Enjoy the show.
0: Run. it's going well, Tony. We're uh, a little bit, a little bit late for uh, 1905, but uh, you know we had Memorial Day, of course. Right. So this is an American history podcast. I think we should all appreciate that. Yeah, it's only right.
1: We'll be back on schedule for 1906, presumably. There's only one Memorial Day, <laughs> <laughs> and it already happened. So, all right, In my well. eyes, there's no other reason. To miss an episode besides the 4th of July. Truly, I think every day should be Memorial Day, Tony. It is here at the Luckiest Man Podcast. <laughs> every day is Memorial Day here. That's true. We're, we're very
0: pro-Memorial Day. One of, one of our many stances that we take is a unified podcast. Pro-Memorial Day, pro-America. True. And pro-high school graduation, if you recall. Indeed. All right, Tony. Well, we've made them wait long enough. We had the extra two days in here. Yeah. So, let's, so get, let's, let's get down to it. Let's get right to work here. And you know what? What better? What better to stay on theme of the luckiest man podcast? Let's just jump right into a disaster. All right. That's what we do here. That's what we know. Let's not diverge. Let's let's give them what they like. Yeah. All right. I got some explosions later on too. So. All right. Cool. I, I have more, much more disaster coming up. So you know. Let's just set the the scene right here. So in Brockton, Massachusetts, a town just 25 miles outside of Boston, it was once one of the leaders of the shoe factory industry. Employing 35,000 shoe workers across two factories, Brockton became the focus of national attention in 1905 for unfortunate reasons, though the event that took place that year would have effects that last until this day. The R.B. Grover Shoe Factory, the smaller of two shoe factories in the city, was a consistently growing business, enough so that they were able to add on to the existing factory. When the fourth floor of the factory was added, a new boiler came with it. Still wanting to preserve a backup, the owners of the factory held on to the old boiler, though Chief Engineer David Rockwell warned against it, as he did not trust it any longer. As part of the factory's maintenance, the new boiler had to be flushed out, and in its place came the old boiler temporarily. Rockwell left the plant, but by 7.45, a worker had called him to inform him that the boiler was making some odd noises. Rockwell was not in, but his assistant informed the, the worker that the boiler was fine. It would soon be discovered that that was not the case, as the boiler exploded, shooting up three floors and through the roof. As the boiler soared through the air, it knocked over a water tower, which sent the water tower crashing on top of the building. Floors and walls collapsed, which served to trap the workers that had survived the initial explosion inside. The burning coals from the boiler landed throughout the debris and were thrown upon gas lines that had been broken. Because all of the windows throughout the building were broken during the explosion, a chimney effect was created and the fire spread, reaching temperatures hot enough to melt iron pipes. Due to a treatment applied to the wood floors to keep dust away, the fire burned through the building quickly. High winds spread the fire to other buildings, including a shed that housed barrels of an industrial solvent similar to gasoline and ignited the fire even further. Firefighters were on the scene quickly and did what they could to clear the wreckage and and free some of the workers that were trapped in the buildings. Some, of, some jumped from windows while others escaped through steroids. One of, the, one of the workers that was able to escape left the scene so dazed that he left the scene, applied for a job at another shoe factory, worked there all day, and returned home to his family mourning him. Once things had been brought under control, police and other responders began the task of identifying remains. Due to the extreme heat of the fire, only a few bodies were able to be identified. All told, 58 were killed in the incident, with another 150 suffering injuries. Due to the known problems with the boiler and some of the other mistakes made along the way, the Grover Shoe Factory disaster led to an increased focus on industrial safety and a national code governing the safe
1: operation of steam boilers. So once again, second week in a row, we got a serious disaster that leads to some increased regulation. That presumably presented more disasters in the future. This is true. We're really setting the setting the pace for America moving just forward. Just like here. the Baltimore fire. I mean, it's unfortunate that events like that are what was evidently required to get the standardization. Especially because even they knew that even the <laughs> yeah. This was, was a like, little different than the ball This was different than the Baltimore situation. In that, yeah, the engineer was like, "Yeah,
0: just throw it away," but then. They, <laughs> they apparently needed to keep things running while uh, the other one was being flushed out. But yeah, pretty crazy for that guy's family. I'm sure a whirlwind day for the one for the guy that was like pretty dazed. Worked at another company for a day and then came back home to his family grieving him, yeah, to say the least. Yeah. So uh, I guess ended up pretty good for them. But uh, yeah, no, not a uh, not a great not a great day in Brockton, Massachusetts. Tony, there. Uh, no, it wasn't. But there were some great days to be had
1: in uh, your next segment here. You just took it. Yes, you, you took my. Got it. <laughs> you teed that Segway up for me, and then you and then you took it away. Had to steal. So, let's talk about Sin City, Las Vegas. Though it may not have been evident at the time, perhaps the most significant historical development in the United States in the year 1905 was the birth of a small town in the Mojave Desert, Las Vegas, Nevada. The earliest visitors toward what would become Las Vegas were nomadic Paleo-Indians who traveled there around 10,000 years ago. In 1829, a young Mexican scout named Rafael Rivera encountered the valley and, in the same year, trader Antonio Armeo led a 60-person party to Las Vegas while traveling the Spanish Trail. Later in the 19th century, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints chose Las Vegas to build a fort in which they would keep supplies due to its location roughly halfway between Los Angeles and Salt Lake City. It wasn't until 1905, of course, that Las Vegas was finally established as a city. At the time, Wells delivered fresh water into the city and also provided the means for additional growth as Vegas became a popular water stop, first for wagon trains and later for railroads, on the trail between Las Vegas and eastward cities like Albuquerque. In a striking nod to its future, just a few years after Las Vegas' incorporation as a city, the state of Nevada became the last western state to outlaw gaming, when in 1910 a strict anti-gambling law took effect. This law even forbade the then popular practice of flipping a coin for the price of a drink. In 1930, Las Vegas' fate would change forever when President Herbert Hoover authorized the construction of the Boulder Dam, later renamed the Hoover Dam, The city's population ballooned from 5,000 to 25,000 as people rushed to the area to find work constructing the dam. Not only was the city given a shot in the arm from an economic perspective, but the dam's construction also ultimately served as a foundation of the Las Vegas that we know today. This is because the new population of the city largely consisted of single men from across the country with no connection to the area, and thus an insatiable market for entertainment was born. For obvious reasons, the state of Nevada legalized gambling in 1931, and Mafia-connected crime bosses' sensing opportunity soon followed. In 1935, the Hoover Dam was completed, and while Las Vegas' population declined with the departure of the dam workers, the city was quite literally recharged as electricity from the dam flowed into its blocks and businesses. And on April 3, 1941, the first ever hotel on what would become the Las Vegas Strip was open, ushering in a new era for the city. With these hotels beginning to draw enormous profits on account of their gourmet restaurants and access to Las Vegas' unparalleled nightlife, the Mafia, which had maintained a presence in the city since the damned construction days, began to pour money into the city. Despite it being common knowledge that these casinos often had dubious backgrounds, by the early 1950s, over 8 million tourists were pumping over $200 million per year into the city. They would drink, gamble, and watch the greatest stars of the day, like Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin, in intimate club settings. After the gradual end of the Mafia and Rat Pack era in the city, coinciding with the aging of the World War II generation, entrepreneurial baby boomers ignited what is referred to as the Mega Resort era in the early 1990s, with the production of numerous massive hotels like the MGM Grand, the Palms, and the Bellagio. During this time period, Las Vegas became a more commercialized and family-friendly place to visit. While Las Vegas was not exempt from the economic downturn of the late 2000s, its economy did recover the construction of landmark hotels continues on and people are still moving to the area. Dating back to the beginning of the Hoover Dam's construction and throughout the 20th century, Las Vegas has been characterized by its explosive population growth, which has never dropped below 20% over the course of a decade and more than doubled over the course of five separate decades. Since Las Vegas' humble beginnings less than 12 decades ago, it has developed into an economic power and has become the place where Americans go to let loose and have fun. It is an unmistakable part of our history and our culture, and has truly earned its title as the entertainment capital of the world. Got a couple things
0: here. Uh, so, okay. nineteen ten, gambling was made illegal in Las Vegas, correct? It.
1: I didn't dig into that too deeply. Well, no, I know what I said, but. It says a strict... I read that an anti-gambling law took effect. Now, I don't know if that necessarily means like nationwide blanket ban on all gambling or what exactly that was. Because the reason I say that, and I'll touch on this in a second, is I know that I believe in the 30s, there was an... Or, sorry, in the 50s, there was sweeping legislation outlawing gaming... So I don't I don't I don't really know what changed between those two checkpoints. It's something for a future episode. It is weird though that if it was like 1910 where it was
0: such a um, it was so like widely spread, but then it was not until 1930 where it really kind of picked up again. So you're talking about 20 years there where Vegas was not really shaping up to what it was what it is now. But then also like you said, it didn't come until 1940s where the first actual hotel.
1: So there wasn't a whole lot going on between 1910. In the first and the construction no no, no no and the, the in the beginning of construction of the Hoover Dam right. the city kind of dipped off during that period but when they started yeah. building the dam that's when a lot of people specifically single men right moved to Las Vegas it's also kind of weird to think about now too i know that they still have
0: a is a pretty pro- prominent mormon population around the Las Vegas area but the fact that a city with such uh, like uh, religious roots
1: is now like the Mecca of gambling in the world. Well, times change. I guess so. But I do have something else, a little callback to our first episode. Hey. Here's a little callback to our Galveston hurricane segment from the 1900 episode. After the hurricane, Galveston leaders rightfully determined the need to diversify the city's economy, away from being overly reliant on its ports. And in the 1920s and 1930s, Galveston again became a tourist destination, though this time for a different reason. Under the influence of the mobbed-up Maceo brothers, Galveston became a hub for gambling and prostitution while exploiting Prohibition, even earning the nickname the Sin City of the Gulf. Galvestonians accepted and supported the illegal activities and often referred to their town as the Free State of Galveston. But as Galveston entered the post-war 50s, its economy again met a downturn with an increased emphasis in enforcement of anti-gambling and anti-prostitution laws, of which Las Vegas was effectively exempt from, as many prominent figures had an economic interest in the booming Nevada city. The shutdown of other gambling centers, like Galveston or Hot Springs, Arkansas, only further cemented Las Vegas's position as a center of the American vice industry. So not only is Galveston's history deeply tied to that of Houston, for those who were listening at the beginning, but also that of Las Vegas. Interesting. Yeah. Tied together. Look at that. And not only that,
0: it's it's you that did both of those segments. Yeah. So you're able to, to work those together.
1: Yeah. How about that? It's because I only pay attention to my segments. <laughs> Pretty much zone out when I'm not talking. Yeah. <laughs> It's only fair. And then I scrambled to ask a question about it once you're done to me. <laughs> just pick up on the last thing that you said. <laughs> All right, Brian. I'm just kidding, by the way. Hopefully.
0: Uh, we're we're going to, for this next segment, we're going to stay in the Texas area. We're going to go to Oklahoma. Um, right. Also a relatively new town going in here. Um Formed in 1902, the town of Snyder, Oklahoma, was home to just over a 1,000 residents, uh, once 1905 rolled around, that is. On May 10th, 1905, however, the town would be changed forever. In a bit of a change of pace, I'm going to let the newspapers of the time tell a story. Okay. The front page story of the Snyder Signal Star read, Most terrible storm, worse than war, which is hell. (laughs) No, that's a headline. That's striking. Uh, The writer set the scene. Heavy clouds had been hanging in the southwest for some time, but they were high and presented no threatening appearance, people freely expressing opinions as to whether or not rain would come. A few minutes before 8 o'clock, a fearful roaring was heard in the southwest. The writer remarked to his family that, but two things ever cause a roar like that, either a very heavy hailstorm or a cyclone. A few minutes of the fearful roaring and then came a heavy rainfall accompanied by some hail caused a second remark expressing the belief that we were then getting the outer edge of heavy hailstorm, which had visited Greer County. In a few minutes, the rain ceased and succeeded by the most terrific electrical storm the writer has ever witnessed. Electricity ran along the telephone wires with a hissing-like skyrocket starting on its upward flight. This lasted probably another 15 minutes, ceasing as suddenly as it had started. Then, after a moment's dead lull, the hungry monster broke up upon the town, picking up strong and well-built buildings and tossing them about like they were bundles of straw, taking away fragments of one man's house and leaving in its place pieces of houses which stood blocks away. Wednesday, the 10th, 10th day of May, was the day... The hour was between 8 and 9 o'clock, several watches having stopped showing from 14 to 18 minutes before 9 o'clock. It is safe to say that the town was wiped out about 8.45. One of the first responders penned what is now known to be the most comprehensive telling of the events. When the spared people crept out of their caves, storm cellars, or came from houses which had not been claimed by the wrath of the wind, they stood for a moment, stunned and dazed. Frantic appeals for help and pitiful moans of the dying fell upon dull ears for an instant, and then the town awoke to the necessity of action, and the work began. The first responder continued, "'Soon the dead and wounded were being carried into available rooms, "'but later the rescue work was devoted alone to the living, "'and this con- work continued through the night. Oh, for the daylight was the plaint of many burdened hearts "'as they sought for loved ones, "'and the air was filled with cries "'welling up from the hearts filled with anguish "'when the lifeless forms of dear, wa- dear ones were found. "'The Pritchard building and the Peckham building "'were in a few minutes filled with the injured and dead.' Both living and dead were horrible in appearance. Clothing had been torn into rags or completely from the forms. Through the slimy black mud which covered every face, it was almost impossible to recognize features. This made the work of identification very difficult, and most of the identifications were arrived at through recognition of some article found in their persons. Soon the search for loved ones was transferred to the rooms temporarily turned into morgues and hospitals. Oh, the agony of it all the uninjured searching among the dead and injured for some lost one, the pitiful inquiries made by injured ones for those that were with them when the storm struck, and their appeals for further search to be made. Men who had not shed a tear in years, for years cried like children. There was no effort to conceal the tears which forced them into the eyes of those who, whose desire to assist forced them to look upon the awful sights to be seen on every side. Penn can never describe the horror of it all so that those who have not passed through similar trials can arrive at one-tenth part of the awfulness of the suffering of the injured and the appearance of the dead. Killing around 10% of the town, the Snyder Tornado remains one of the worst storms in Oklahoma history.
1: It's one thing to hear about a historical event like that in the way that we normally read about them in articles or... Online encyclopedias or materials like that, but it's really something else to hear a documented description of this in the words of someone who is actually there. Yeah, especially, I think both
0: of these stories were published within a couple days, so. Very, very fresh and very raw. Yeah, uh, frightening and an accurate headline, uh, to look back an accurate headline written by the paper. Yeah, man. That was nuts. Yeah, so Tony, uh, I don't believe you have anything to cheer us up, but uh, we've got some important news.
1: Yeah. Okay. At the turn of the century, Frank Stunenberg was a rising political star. An Iowa native and successful newspaper publisher, Stunenberg moved west to Idaho in 1886 and became interested in politics in his late 20s. With the backing of intense labor support, Stunenberg was elected governor of Idaho in 1896 as both a Democratic and Populist candidate. He was only 35 and was the first ever non-Republican governor of Idaho. Stunenberg's tenure as governor was uncharted territory for Idaho's private sector, as they had never dealt with such a pro-labor presence in the past. Fearing that the state government would not support them in the event of a strike, these companies raised their workers' wages. However, the Bunker Hill Mining Company kept wages low and hired only non-union workers. In retaliation, members of the Western Federation of Miners destroyed the company's mills, and as a result, Studenberg declared martial law, which was viewed as a betrayal by his union supporters. As you can imagine, this irreparably damaged the governor politically, and in 1900, he did not seek re-election. Which brings us to 1905. Nearly five years after Studenberg left office, the former governor was killed outside of his home in Caldwell, Idaho, by a bomb rigged against his side gate. Harry Orchard, a former miner affiliated with the Western Federation of Miners, was quickly arrested and first claimed innocence. However, after time in solitary confinement and intense interrogation, Orchard signed a 64-page typewritten confession detailing years of being a paid assassin and dynamiter for the WFM. Orchard said that his orders for the killing came, of Stunenberg came from Big Bill Haywood, general secretary of the WFM, Charles Moyer, president of the WFM, and George Pettibone, a labor activist. Those three were arrested and extradited to Idaho for trial. The 1907 trial in Boise became a national sensation. U.S. Senator William Borah represented the prosecution, and legendary attorney Clarence Darrow represented the defense. Orchard was interrogated on the witness stand for over 26 hours and read his lengthy confession before the court. Closing arguments lasted two weeks, of which Darrow's was the most controversial. Darrell used emotional rhetoric and argued that the labor unions held a morally superior position. The Chicago Tribune called this speech the most unseemly, abusive, and inflammatory speech ever delivered in an American courtroom. In a shocking verdict, the jury returned an acquittal for Haywood. Pettibone was also acquitted in a separate trial, and charges were dropped against Moyer. Orchard pled guilty and received a death sentence. However, this was later reduced to life in prison. Forty-five years later, at 86 years old, Orchard wrote an autobiography in prison in which he stated that every part of his confession letter and trial testimony was true. In 1927, a bronze statue of Stunenberg was erected outside of the Idaho state Capitol in Boise. It is inscribed with a quote from William Borah at Stunenberg's trial. When in 1999, organized lawlessness challenged the power of Idaho, he upheld the dignity of the state enforced its authority, and restored law and order within its boundaries, for which he was assassinated in 1905. Rugged in body, resolute in mind, massive in the strength of his convictions, he was of the granite hewn. In grateful memory of his courageous devotion to public duty, the people of Idaho have erected this monument. You did not lie
0: when you said that uh, that took you on a little bit of a path that you didn't expect to go down. Definitely. Definitely. I... I did not expect all that. Did not expect to see Clarence Darrow involved in this, I'm sure. And then beyond that, uh, the fact that it was the union was behind it. Alleged, Well, I guess allegedly.
1: Yeah. When I originally just glanced over the list of potential topics that we make before we begin our preparation for each episode, I assumed this was sort of just an isolated incident, maybe a... Mistake or a personal grudge or something. I had no idea that yeah. this whole thing turned into this national sensation of a trial with Clarence Darrow arguing and
0: everything uh, else.
1: Yeah, so, yeah, it was it was something. That's crazy, and I'm assuming
0: that that statue still stands, which yeah. is oh, yeah. also pretty incredible. Yep. All right, Tony. Well. We've got uh, we got some more some more important history that would be uh, relatively involved in politics, but very much related to unions. Uh, hopefully, not in the same way. A lot of smooth transitions in this episode, I guess, I guess so. It's, we somehow did not plan this out, uh, much, much to our dismay. Serge <laughs> <laughs> so probably probably should not admit to not uh, planning yeah, it I out. Have <laughs> but uh, anyway, so. We're in New York for this scene. Uh, Joseph Lochner, a bakery owner in New York, he rose to national prominence due to his pushback on a semi-recently passed labor law in 1905. Passed in 1895, the Bake Shop Act prohibited employers from having their employees work more than 10 hours per day or 60 hours per work week. Two years after the act's passage, Lochner was found in violation of it and was fined twenty five dollars, which is roughly seven hundred dollars today. He paid the fine, but when he was found in violation once again in nineteen oh one, he decided to take up the case with the state court. That court ruled against him, as did the New York Court of Appeals, so Lochner took his case to the Supreme Court. Based on his appeal basing his appeal on the Fourteenth Amendment, which states That, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, along with the Supreme Court establishing that the due process clause is not only a procedural guarantee, but also a substantive limitation on the type of control that the government may exercise over individuals. Lochner argued that his employment contract with his his employee was being unfairly restricted by the Bake Shop Act, and in a tremendous surprise, the Supreme Court agreed, stating that the law limiting baker's hours did not constitute a legitimate exercise of state police powers, so it was unconstitutional. It argued that protections for freedom of contract were necessary, and that unequal bargaining power was irrelevant. Justice Rufus Peckham delivered the opinion of the court and stated, among other things, the question whether this act is valid as a labor law, pure and simple, may be dismissed in a few words. There's no reasonable ground for interfering with the liberty of a person or the right of a free contract by determining the hours of labor and the occupation of a baker. There is no contention that bakers as a class are not equal in intelligence and capacity to men in other trades or manual occupations. Or that they are not able to assert their rights and care for themselves without protecting the arm of the state, without the protecting arm of the state interfering with their inter- independence of judgment and of action, they are in no sense wards of the state, viewed in the light of a purely labor law. With no reference whatever to the question of health, we think that a law like the one before us involves neither the safety, the morals, nor the welfare of the public, and that the interest of the public is not in the slightest degree affected by such an act. The dissent of Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes who was one part of the four in the five to four decision, has gone on to to be one of the more notable dissents in the court's history. He believed that the justices supporting the decision were thinking based on their own economic opinions rather than on constitutional merit. This case is decided upon an economic theory which a large large part of the country does not entertain. If it were a question whether I agreed with that theory, I should desire to study it further and long before making up my mind. But I do not conceive that that to be my duty, because I strongly believe that my agreement or disagreement has nothing to do with the right of a majority to embody their opinions in law. Lochner versus New York set up the stage for the Lochner era of the Supreme Court in the United States, in which the Supreme <coughs> Court made it common practice to strike down economic "...regulations adopted by states based on the court's own notions and opinions. Some have viewed Lochner v. New York as one of the most condemned cases in United States history, and others have called it an abomination and an obvious overreach of power. Regardless of the modern-day opinion of however, Lochner v. New York was a case that changed the Supreme Court for decades, first with the economic liberties and later in the 1960s and
1: beyond with protecting
0: personal rights like privacy."
1: Wow, that's fascinating. So how do you... How did Lochner... What mechanism did he use to get his case to the Supreme Court? I wondered the exact same thing. If it was struck down. I don't know if it... I mean,
0: if it was easier back... I mean, I'm sure it was easier back then, but um, I have literally no idea how you would... You get rejected at, like, your local court, then you get rejected at the Court of Appeals. I mean...
1: I don't know. I mean, maybe it was just a more free flowing process right then. Perhaps I'm showing my ignorance of the judicial system, but that was, that was something that I was definitely found noteworthy as you were going through that. But it's very interesting. I was not familiar with that. And also interesting. And you can clearly see how that could be applied to privacy laws or I believe they, I mean, myriad, you know, I believe they applied it to Roe v. Wade. Um, in like
0: the '70s when that was
1: going on, so yeah, I can see why people at the state level would not like that. No, <laughs> I, yeah, you pass something and then the Supreme Court just says no. Yeah, and not only
0: not only do you pass something as a state, but then you get rejected. A guy gets rejected twice by courts in your state, and yeah, gets it taken to the Supreme Court, and they're like, "Ah, well,
1: sure, <laughs> go for it." <laughs> That's something we'll have to look into. Yeah, I mean, it's... uh, Two legal questions, then. Yes, sir. For us to to research before the next episode, how that worked, and what changed in gambling legislation between 1910 and 1950. True. So, yeah, I mean... Looking back at my notes from the Vegas part, I'm starting to think that, just in the post-war era, maybe that they started more heavily enforcing laws that were already on the books. Probably. But... That's something we'll have to look into as well. We will. Tony, some other uh some other regulations were changing
0: around this time as well. Let's uh let's get back into sports. Alright. We've got a little bit of uh we've had too many court cases and too many tragedies here. Let's get so, to what really matters. Yeah, let's get <laughs> to what really matters. Uh high school football players dying. So <laughs> this uh, according to the Chicago Tribune, nineteen oh four saw eighteen mostly high school aged lives lost while playing football. Wow. Whether it was 16-year-old Robert Brown, who was thrown onto his head and neck while running around the edge, 18-year-old Carl Osborne, whose broken rib pierced his heart, or William Moore, who carried the ball into the line and was kicked in the head, young men were dying each year due to football. One of the game's biggest fans happened to come to power in the turn of the century, as President Theodore Roosevelt was known as one of the game's top supporters. In a 1903 speech, Roosevelt said, I believe in rough games and in rough manly sports. I do not feel any particular sympathy for the person who gets battered about a good deal, so long as it is not fatal. Might, but it was yeah, fatal. Yeah, well, he might. Yeah, I was gonna say, <laughs> quite soon after, if not like minutes after, he was probably proven incorrect. There. Well, that's that's when he's not a fan of it. Is when they die. But like getting unconscious, it's it's fine. So, anyways. Uh, While considered to be a relatively dangerous game still today, football in 1905 was nothing if not a blood sport. There was no forward passing, and first downs only required five yards, so the main strategy of the day was to run the ball and bludgeon the opposition to pick up the required yardage. Despite no padding, helmets, or protection of any sort, one of the most popular plays was the flying wedge, where players would lock arms with one another and form a battering ram to get through the defense. Hundreds of players were severely injured on top of the deaths incurred, and the carnage began to be too much for the country to take. Newspapers called on high schools and colleges to ban football entirely, and the Beaumont Express stated, The once-athletic sport has degenerated into a contest that for brutality is little better than the gladiatorial combats in the arena in ancient Rome. Change did not seem to be on the mind of those organizing, but Roosevelt soon decided to take a stand. His son, Theodore Jr., was on Harvard's freshman football team. Some say it may have been intentional or that he was targeted, but whatever the case may be, Roosevelt Jr. had his face staved in during the 1905 season and his nose was shattered. Call it paternal instinct, favoritism, or whatever else, but this may have been the incident that pushed President Roosevelt to take a stand in reforming the sport. With the future of football hanging in the balance, President Roosevelt brought the administrators of Harvard, Princeton, and Yale together in October of 1905 to clean up the game. It is rumored that Roosevelt threatened to ban the sport with an executive order if they did not comply, and a joint statement was released from the schools that denounced the brutality. The 1905 season, unfortunately, did not match up with the strong words. In a game against Yale, Harvard's Francis Burr was knocked unconscious after he was cold-cocked, After calling a fair catch, this led for Harvard's president to declare that they would no longer play football. And by the end of the year, California, Columbia, Duke, Northwestern and Stanford had dropped football completely. Fresh off of brokering an end to the Russo-Japanese War, President Roosevelt reconvened the schools to put put football back on the right path. He would come to find out that his negotiations to end war were perhaps easier than writing the ship of football. Walter Camp, who had initially laid out the rules of football, represented Yale and had no interest in seeing any changes to the game. On the other side, Harvard's president was willing to sacrifice football if it meant that it would preserve the health and welfare of his students. Roosevelt was on the side of reform, but he was privately worried that his alma mater wanted to emasculate football and hoped that football would never be played on too ladylike a basis. Though there were tensions, Roosevelt pushed forward, and by the end of and by the end, nineteen new rules had been established for the 1906 season. The line of scrimmage was established, the flying wedge was abolished, and the first down distance was extended to ten yards. Along with that, the forward pass was also established. There would be eleven deaths from football in 1906, and the same in 1907. But 1905 stood as the breakthrough for football that saved the sport from a near-certain extinction.
1: One of the particular ironies of that story is that a reason why the game in that stage of its development was so dangerous was because of lack of equipment, right? And yet, today, that's what a lot of activists seem to be calling for is actually taking removing, removing equipment yeah. to get the helmet-to-helmet hits out of the game, so your head can no longer be used like a weapon. So that part was interesting. But the College Football Hall of Fame used to be in South Bend, Indiana. I believe it's since moved to Atlanta. But I went in 2012, and actually there was a section about how Roosevelt essentially saved so the college game. Yeah, And there I, I believe there was... A part of it too was that young men who weren't able to serve in war needed to. They wanted to find some vehicle to to prove their manhood, and football is the way they did it, which definitely did not, which you know, definitely emphasized the violence of the game. And and yeah, I'm surely made people gravitate towards it, if anything. But yeah, it's a it's a fascinating story, and I as a Long-suffering college football fan I'm grateful for Roosevelt As a drink from my Lions water bottle As
0: we talk about this Uh, I mean it, it is pretty It was interesting to me that I mean obviously it's way different now There's not dozens of people dying each year from it But a lot of the arguments against football Still remain the same today Like there's still people that call on high schools and colleges To stop playing Just due to the safety aspect of it and there's also people that, if there's any re- reform that's pushed towards making football, I guess, quote unquote, safer, like Roosevelt said, people are saying it, you're going to emasculate football. Which, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I would rather not see people just get knocked unconscious in the field. It's very yeah. uncomfortable, especially now with what we know about, beyond the obvious reasons, but what we know about, like, brain injuries and
1: whatnot definitely and i mean we could i don't want to get too deep into this topic but especially given watching college football yeah. and the players on the field being uncompensated and the long-term health risks that they're taking just for the op, the chance of someday making a living and that even if you get to that stage the average nfl career is very short it's not 3 like, years i believe yeah very short and while even practice squad players make good money, it's not life-altering money. It's not enough money to set you up for the rest of your life or anything like that. So, there. Are, I mean, to, to get back to your original point, I'm definitely for anything that can make the game safer. And you know, it's just it, there's a little there's a little part of you in watching watching college football specifically that's a bit uncomfortable when there's you some guilt, yeah, I would say absolutely.
0: I guess, one, again, not to get too far off into the football topic, though, but I don't know if you had watched any of the AAF.
1: No, I I didn't, but I did some reading about it, and a lot of the rules and idiosyncrasies of the game seemed very interesting.
0: So I thought one of the things that they did that, that was interesting, so they completely got rid of the kickoff. Yeah. So that was one thing, but... I think what the XFL is doing too, they're gonna. To there's some other kind of rule that is going to. Because I guess what they determined and what the NFL has determined too is that the kickoff is like notoriously unsafe. I guess because you have people just. Sprinting. Yeah, you're running
1: full. Sp- yeah, running full speed at someone who is backing up. Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of different experimentation to be yeah. done there. One of the interesting. Well, the college game moved up. I mean the. the College game has effectively yeah, gotten got rid, rid of, of the it. kickoff by moving it up. So it's almost never not a touchback. The kicker just boots it out of the back of the end zone. It's kind of a waste of time. Right. One of the interesting ideas kind of related,
0: you know how overtime in, in the or in the NFL, uh, if you win the toss and you score a touchdown, the game's over. So yeah. there's a chance of only one team ever touching the ball. An interesting idea that I saw was that you, it's completely impractical, but... Uh, the teams at midfield uh, before the before overtime gets started, you put in a blind bid of where you start with the ball, and a team that's closer to their own goal line gets the ball. I would be up for that. Is the game still over if you if the first team that gets the ball scores? Yes. So if you take it at your one yard line, drive it ninety nine yards down the
1: field, you win. I still don't like it. It's. I mean, it's. It's interesting, but I prefer the college model. Just go from the twenty fives, and I think go in so everybody gets a. The college model,
0: the team who wins the toss, they win more often than in the NFL. If you win the toss, that's a statistic that I saw.
1: So, like, as far as like balance goes, although you. I mean, I don't know if. Well that's not really what I'm looking for it's more so it just feels unsatisfying for one team yeah if you win you win the coin toss you get the ball you score and then the game's over it just it doesn't i'm not i'm not approaching it as much from a results standpoint it's more just like although it feels unsatisfying if your team's on the losing end of it it's like okay well that's we never got the ball and that's the game
0: well that's how people for new england kansas city this or this these past playoffs they felt i mean they have the number one offense in the league they don't don't even get to touch the ball. But I was pretty happy
1: with how it turned out with Tom Brady. <laughs> that was a great game. It was. That was an that was an excellent game. But one more, one more thing before we move on, the again I didn't see I didn't watch any of the AFL, but I heard about this, and so I apologize if I'm retelling this incorrectly or describing this rule incorrectly. But did they get rid of the onside kick and instead you have like a fourth and fifteen? Yeah. From your own twenty-five to keep them all I believe that's how it
0: was, and I—that's pretty cool. That was uh, Greg Schiano came up with that actually. <laughs> yes, this is Schiano rule. <laughs> yes. I'm
1: just not even going to say anything to that. Not going to touch on that as you wear a Michigan shirt. <laughs> well, of anybody, I mean, you could have given me five hundred guesses <laughs> just and never would have created that rule, and <laughs> yeah, I never would have come to Greg
0: Schiano. Just come up with multiple people who have been deceased for at least like the last 50 years, and it's yeah, it's correct, But yeah, no. well, that's a
1: good rule though, I mean, because is, it's like, who can, uh, What's uh, what's a recovery rate of an onside kick? Like, it has to be less than five percent, right? I want to say it's higher than that, but it's really, been, it, I, I think it is a little bit higher than that, but I think it's been,
0: de- it's, I want to say it took like a pretty steep drop off over the last couple of years. Why? Well, I, I don't know why, but I don't know. But then, I mean, you do see when an onside kick does get recovered. Do you remember uh, Seattle versus Green Bay in a playoffs a few years ago? No. Right, right off the Green Bay, uh, right off his hands, and then Seattle recovered, scored a touchdown, won.
1: The one I always think of is from the Saints-Colts Super Bowl. That was awesome. Yeah. That was great. But all right, enough up, let, yeah. let, enough of boss let's, let's get Tony. Right. So, Tony, born in
0: 1905. We got Howard Hughes. Vegas guy. Yes. Fred Trump, uh, President Trump's father. Yeah. Henry Fonda. Uh, James J. Braddock of uh, Cinderella Man fame. Okay. Love that movie. Uh, J. Howard Marshall, who married Anna Nicole Smith. That guy was born in nineteen oh five. Yeah, that was a pretty big story at the time <laughs> when he had passed away. And then Sterling Holloway, the voice of Winnie the Pooh.
1: Okay, didn't know that. Didn't know that guy. Deaths. Uh, we have John Hay. Was, we were just that. Also goes back to the first. It's cool that we're get, we're getting more and more not, items and people that not to not to think too that far... that go back to our previous episodes. Not to think too far in advance here.
0: Nineteen oh six is absolutely insane for how much it ties into what we've already done and what we're going to be doing within that episode but keep listening now we still have a lot of 1905 left you
1: guys Uh, have 12 days remember short short yeah yeah, so so if you want to if you want to be all caught up before we get to this watershed 1906 breakthrough episode then you better hurry up there you go uh and then john rogan also passed away who was the
0: second tallest person ever eight foot nine man should have played
1: basketball he would have been the Taco Fall of the turn of the century. <laughs> he was except he was literally over a foot taller than Taco Fall. Yeah, that's crazy. Uh, How old was that guy? Probably he, not. Probably not, not after, that old. He was yeah. not
0: very old, but he was older than what you would think. Uh, I want to say he might have been in his thirties or forties. He was thirty-seven years old. Wow. Yes. So he was. Uh, Didn't eight, have a lot of weight on him. Eight foot nine, about two hundred pounds. Yeah. We're looking at a picture. He's very, very thin. Yeah, I would, I would recommend looking him up. Um, but yeah, did not, uh, did not go well. But he was apparently a very nice guy to be around. Uh, yeah, a gentle giant, you could say, quite literally. Health issues really come when you're that, when you're that big. Yep. Uh, the some inventions of 1905, plastic. That's, that's a big that's, one. That's a big one. Uh, silencer for guns. Historically significant, if nothing else. Big in the movies as well. Yeah, overplayed in the movies, from what I understand. The, the, like when you, you were seeing, like that she was uh, put a gun on with a silence. Yeah, and it's like, like, <laughs> just absolutely silent. It's like, don't really think that's how that works. Yeah. Uh, also, sure. not well, that I've ever used one, but a little, little bit. <laughs> allegedly, a uh, little bit lighter note. Popsicles were also created. Oh, I'm a fan. The batting helmet, also a fan. You Could also say the downfall of baseball there too. The, the emasculation of baseball. But he was, it was Roger Bresnahan, uh, was a baseball player, who came up with it after getting injured, and he was ridiculed pretty heavily for it. Of course, I'm sure. Tony, <laughs> we're gonna stick on baseball for this little little quick hitter. These Good quick hitters here, to touch on a previous topic. Professional baseball player Frank Hewlesman is someone I'm sure really wished the Wright brothers would have invented the plane a decade or two before they did. Starting his career in 1897, Hewlesman played two games with the St. Louis Browns before washing out of the major leagues. After seven years, Hewlesman made it back to the big leagues in 1904 when he signed a contract with the Chicago White Sox. What he didn't know, however, is that this would be the start of a whirlwind of transactions. After three games with Chicago, he was purchased by the Detroit Tigers. Around a week later, he was returned to the White Sox, and a week after that, he was purchased by St. Louis. Under a month later, he was traded to the Washington Senators. In January of 1905, he was reclaimed from Washington by St. Louis, and St. Louis subsequently traded him to Boston to complete (laughs) eight transactions within the course of a year, though he hit 342 in the minor leagues over an almost 20 year career, Hewelsman's legacy is one of the first people in history that should have had frequent flyer miles.
1: Oh bang yeah, gotta go in there. So he had a seven year gap in his yeah. career and then he hit 3 four, but he still had 342 lifetime. He was in the minors that
0: entire time. Um, wow so yeah he, I mean yeah he was just destroying the minor leagues. And Why couldn't he stick with the club then? I don't know. I mean, he could have just been like a 4A kind of guy. A Mike Hessman, if you will. Uh, Yeah, I was going to say Tommy La but he's actually pretty good. Yeah, (laughs) Mike Hessman, all-time international league home runs leader. Yeah, he's like the real-life Bull Durham. He is actually coaching. I believe he is the hitting coach for the Mudhunts right now.
1: Really? Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Love that guy. Nice dude. Yeah, you guys probably interacted. Ah, uh, he wasn't there, but uh, I believe I met him once while we were there. And from every, everyone always just says how nice of a guy he is, and uh, yeah, always would hit bombs in Toledo. Yeah. All right, Tony. More up your alley here. Okay. Though the automobile was still a relatively new invention at the turn of the century, that didn't prevent people around the country from becoming automobile enthusiasts. One site for these meetups was Ormond Beach, Florida, where groups would convene to race their cars for bragging rights. On January 31st, 1905, this particular meetup set a world record. Driving a Napier, British driver Arthur Macdonald got his car up to 104.65 miles per hour, the first time in history that a car had cracked the 100 mile per hour barrier. Fifteen minutes later, H.B. Bowden, who had spent almost $1.5 million in today's dollars, building his twin-engine Mercedes topped that mark. Bowden's record was later disqualified, but McDonald stood as an all-time first. Why do you get disqualified? Uh, I believe it was something with how the engine was constructed, or... Huh. I, don't, I don't really know. Maybe it was wind-dated. I, I have no idea. Interesting. That's what I've got for you. Do you watch the Indy 500 at all? No. You went to it, didn't you?
1: No. No. You were in Indianapolis for it? No. Well, just You just watched it. <laughs> Yeah, we watched the beginning and the end. I don't know. My dad and I have talked about going for years. Always wanted to go, but just didn't do it. Have you ever been to like a race like that at all? I've been to NASCAR, but never IndyCar or Formula One. So, but it's, the any Indy, IndyCar they were they at the Indy five hundred they do like two hundred twenty five miles an hour. Yeah. It's crazy. But to, topping hundred at that time, like especially if you've seen photos or are familiar at all with cars from the turn of the century, I mean that's that's crazy. Yeah. Well, and the guy that spent one point five million dollars
0: in, in to build <laughs> to build, he got DQ'd. Yeah, he's like ah man. <laughs> should have what he should have done with that one point five million dollars? Maybe budget off like a hundred grand to bribe who was ever disqualifying him. Maybe
1: do that with it. I'd like to see the rules. Yeah, I'd, I have literally no idea. Was this like a... I mean, it clearly was a sanctioned event of some sort. but Right. I got nothing. Yeah. No. Anyways, Tony, <sighs> keep going. Let's, let's move it
0: around. In February of 1905, Chicago attorney Paul P. Harris called together a group of local businessmen in order to plant, build a plan for improving the community. Joined by the mining engineer and Freemason Gustav Lohr, coal merchant Sylvester Sheely... And Taylor, Iram Shuri, the group convened weekly to pitch different ideas. Switching meeting places between each other's businesses, the group labeled themselves as the Rotary Club. Within no time, the group of four expanded, and within a few years, similar clubs had started in San Francisco, Oakland, Seattle, and Los Angeles. Today, the Rotary Club is in 200 countries and territories and boasts 1.2 million members. As one of the key organizations for service, Rotary International is one of the most inclusive groups in the country to this day. That's a nice story. There you go. Uh, Also, a little fun fact that I know, uh, the Rotary gives out an award each year called the Paul Harris Fellowship Award. It's named
1: after the founder, Paul Harris. So That's a rare Luckiest Man segment that's just... Just a nice, just nice and pleasant. <laughs> yeah. No one gets harmed. Nothing bad happens. There's no controversy. Just, uh, just some people got together and made the world a better place. There's something to be said for that. Yeah. Like, and then
0: like next episode, we're gonna have to break in with like, oh, a scandal broke out through Rotary International. I have to
1: disavow everything I previously said. Listen, people, listeners, if you guys prefer the happy stuff, we can we can give that to you too. We can give you a, a rose-colored version <laughs> of our. Country's history, but you got to you got to tweet at us. Yeah, (laughs) let us us know. Let let us know
0: how happy you want to be after listening.
1: Yeah, or if you like the depressing stuff, the sad stuff, we can we got more than enough to keep going down that down that path. Well,
0: hopefully our listeners do like that because uh, here we go. All right, we're going in here.
1: Okay, you got. Brian
0: just prevented me from looking at the note screens. I, so. want, I want the uh, I want the full reaction here in person, just as I would love to see full reactions of our listeners to this. All oh, right. boy. So, unquestionably, one of the greatest baseball
1: players of all time. Are we going to have to put the explicit tag on <laughs> iTunes? <laughs> I was just thinking about that earlier. Uh, no. Okay. Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, We'd right. be toast in terms of potential future advertisers. Yeah. Just drop <laughs> an explicit tag in, in a history podcast. Yeah. Alright, so... Unquestionably,
0: one of the greatest baseball players of all time, Ty Cobb made his debut for the Detroit Tigers in 1905. Before we get going here, Tony, where would you rank Ty Cobb amongst the greatest hitters
1: of all time? I mean, certainly up there. I can't, I can't put that list together without the numbers in front of me, though. So I'm, I'm going to punt. For so so me,
0: I would, I would say at worst he would be top five, and probably at worst top three. With Babe Ruth, uh, Ted Williams in there as well. All lefties, so. Anyways, maybe that tells you something. That I should have been left. My, my dad should have tied my right arm behind my back while I was growing up. I'm like, not
1: kidding about what, when I have a son someday.
0: <laughs> 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 well,
1: like, no, no, no. Other hand. Other hand. Just don't look up Todd Maranovich. It's, uh, it's irrelevant. But, anyways. Uh, the- I swear, that is the second Marinovich reference I've heard today. Really? Isn't that wild? That is very weird. I prob- what was the first? I was listening. It's, it's not worth getting into. but li- It's not, you know, nothing explicit or anything. It's just too long a story for the pod. But I, I, I'm serious. That was the second Todd Mernovich reference I've heard today.
0: All right. Well, I'm,
1: I'm glad we got that Now that is a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: anyways, Ty Cobb makes his debut for the Tigers in 1905. It was big news in itself, obviously, because, you know, as we've discussed, one of the greatest hits of all time but this is not what we're going to focus on. Just three weeks before his debut, Cobb's family drew the attention of the state of Georgia for all the wrong reasons. As as Ty's mother, Amanda Cobb, laid in her bedroom, she heard what she thought was an intruder attempting to break into the house. Firing twice, Cobb killed the man that was entering through the bedroom window. As it turned out, the man she shot was her husband and Ty's father, William Herschel Cobb. While most, including an eventual jury, believed that Amanda genuinely believed William was an intruder, there were others that thought differently. The talk of the town was that William suspected his wife of being unfaithful and returned home unexpectedly at night when she believed he would be out of town. Regardless of the gossip, Amanda Cobb was acquitted of the charges.
1: I did know that story, actually, but that does not make it any less crazy and also, just given what we know about Ty Cobb and what an abrasive and angry bitter person that guy seemed to have been, it's I think looking back at his upbringing, it's that makes sense. Kind of not surprising that his personality was a bit off. I think in recent years, because a lot of what is
0: what people know about Ty Cobb was based on one uh, book that was, or one biography that was released. And apparently people have gone back and traced some of that biography and a lot of it was either painted painted him in a very poor light when it wasn't necessarily deserved or it was just straight up untrue. So I think... Well, I mean, I'm sure, you know, he's not that great of a guy looking back... Wasn't it, he though.
1: quoted, though, towards the end of his life saying something along the lines of how he regretted not treating people better and that... I think so. He's, you know, laments... Essentially dying friendless. That's true, but I mean, so it couldn't have been exaggerated too much if that quote is legitimate. But I, I, some of the some of
0: the incidents that is like that were, we're kind of blown out of proportion, and I don't, I don't think a lot of people know that he was one of like the biggest proponents of integration in baseball too. Now that yeah is interesting, yeah, because you know, I mean you're thinking guy from 1900s Georgia, yeah, like, uh, but yeah, no, he was a pretty big proponent of it too. So.
1: Well, wow. I didn't think there were I didn't even think that there were vocal supporters of integration at that stage because it would take a long time. Yeah. I, I mean, maybe it would have came later in his life, but he was still Oh, okay, uh, yes. I don't oh, know about that's that's probably you're right. You're right. It probably wasn't right. He again. probably wasn't a vocal supporter of it throughout his entire career. Right. And towards the end of his career is much closer. To, right. To breaking the color barrier. So that makes sense. All right, Tony, we got one more, one last one.
0: Okay. This one's going to take us on even more of a ride. (laughs) Born in 1857 in Eastwood, Ontario. I promise this comes back to the United States. Okay. Elizabeth Bigley grew up with the reputation as someone who was known to tell a lie. At the age of 14, she claimed to have received an inheritance from an uncle in England and wrote several checks based on that. She was later arrested for forgery, but was released due to her age and on the grounds of insanity. Bigley would move to the United States to live with her sister and brother-in-law in in Cleveland and before long found her own house. It was there that she set up shop as a fortune teller named Madame Lydia DeVere. After just a few years in the United States, she married Dr. William Springsteen and moved into his home. A photograph of the marriage was published in a local newspaper which Bigley's sister saw and caused her and others to come to the doctor's home in order to get him to pay for the debts that his new wife had run up. Just a few months after they married, Springsteen Springsteen divorced Bigley and threw her out of his house. The following year, Bigley established herself as a clairvoyant in Cleveland yet again, this time known as Madame Marie LaRose. She met her second husband, John Scott, there, and yet again was divorced within just a few years. In 1889, she was sentenced to nine and a half years in a Toledo penitentiary for forgery. Serving just four years, she returned to Cleveland in 1893. It was there that she opened a brothel and met her third husband, Dr. Leroy Chadwick. Don't do it. Yeah. Now going by the name Cassie Chadwick, she developed a habit of spending tremendous amounts of money. During a visit to New York, Chadwick requested to be taken to the home of Andrew Carnegie upon exiting <laughs> yep well hold on here upon exiting chadwick showed her traveling companion a promissory note for 2 million dollars and claimed to be an illegitimate child of the business mogul when she returned to ohio word of her connection to carnegie got out and banks everywhere were lining up to lend her money after 8 years chadwick had accumulated 10 to 20 million in loans In November 1904, she attempted to secure a $400,000 loan from a banker in Massachusetts. In filing her paperwork, the banker was stunned to see the total of Chadwick's outstanding loans. He called in her loan, and she was unable to pay, which led her to flee to New York. She was arrested soon afterward, and she was later sentenced in 1905 to 14 years in prison. Carnegie, when later asked, said that he had never met her and that he hadn't signed a note in decades. Chadwick died in prison just two years later, on her fiftieth birthday. You gotta take that trade off of of
1: dying at fifty, or well, no, she only spent two years in prison. Oh, yeah. I mean, if we're working under the assumption that she was gonna pass away at fifty, anyways, yeah. I mean, this is great life. Go for a ride there. <laughs> yeah, she had a not that well. I mean, she did spend not-
0: four years in prison previously. I though. thought it. Was- Oh, yeah. Two plus the four in Toledo,
1: which I mean, not an ethical person. Not a good person. She went for it. But... Shot her shot. Ambitious and enterprising.
0: True. You do have to wonder where people like that would end up if they use their, like, intelligence and, like, savviness for, like, a positive goal. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, I guess it ended up being positive for her to some extent.
1: Yeah, but I know what you're saying. Yeah, that would that would benefit other people, right? In society at large, sure. There are a lot of people that fit that profile. That is very true. Well, I think that's about it, Brian. Tony, we went, uh, we gave, we gave the
0: listeners a little bit extra since we were uh, out of commission for a little bit there. Yeah, you had to wait two extra days to listen to the pod, so you get a little extra. Hope you enjoyed. So, Tony, uh, on tap for 1906, we have uh, some murder. A little bit of murder going on there. Okay, more murder. Some some natural disasters. As per usual. So a little bit of... uh, Just as tradition. (laughs) A little bit of tension throughout the country. Uh, And, And, you know, we uh, we just got more sports, I'm sure, as we always do. So, you know, 1906, it's going to be released a couple Tuesdays from now. Definitely going to be on a Tuesday. And, uh, you know, I think
1: people are really going to enjoy it. Looking forward to it. Always looking forward to Lay down the next one. Tony, let them know where they can find us. You can find us on Twitter at luckiestmanpod. Find us on iTunes. Find us on SoundCloud. Please give us a good review. And we will see you in two weeks. Thanks again, guys.